You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Have you ever wanted to chat with a CIA analyst about how to spot propaganda campaigns or maybe learn what it is like to be a real-life private investigator? I want you to check out Jordan Harbinger's podcast. He has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-been-heard-before stories and thought-provoking insights. Check out Jordan's conversations with Thomas Erickson about how to protect yourself from psychopaths or his chat with Renee DiResta on dismantling the disinformation machine without fail. He pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with the noble cause to make you a more informed, critical thinker to better operate in today's world. There is so much here. There's just so much here. You can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It is incredibly interesting. There is never a dull show. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and good morning, y'all. We are gearing up for a wild week in preparation for Justice Toll to decide Ellie Murdoch's fate on Monday, January 29th, and likely on the 30th. I'm so excited to be covering the hearing next week and chatting with premium members on the premium feed as the events unfold. Learn more about how you can join the conversation at lunasharkmedia.com slash membership. This week's Cup of Justice will be a little different as we invite new contributors to expose the truth, give voice to victims, and get the story straight. On today's show, Eric and I explore ethics in criminal defense with well-known Atlanta criminal defense attorney, Noah Pines. Next month, Liz and I are excited to interview Noah's client, Joey Watkins who was finally released from prison after 22 years as his conviction for a crime he didn't commit was overturned. We're gonna be doing more episodes like this one where one or two COJ hosts interview special guests and we would love to hear your feedback as COJ amplifies more voices, illuminates more cases and educates you on more concepts. Today's guest is Noah Pines, a criminal defense attorney from Philly, but currently practicing in Atlanta, Georgia. Noah was one of the first supporters of the Murdoch Murders podcast. During our conversation with him, we cover how he found himself in the legal profession, how he became a fan of our podcast and mission, and how hard it is to overturn a murder conviction. In a segment reserved just for premium members, Noah starts asking the questions to EB and me about the team and what's next for COJ. I'm so excited to share this interview with y'all. So let's get into it. Hey there, Luna Shark members, True Sunlight listeners and Cup of Justice listeners. Cups up, everybody. Cups up. Cups up. This is a special morning. We have uh, Mandy Matney with me, and we have our really, really good friend that we've been dying to interview, world-famous, excellent criminal defense attorney, Noah Pines out of Atlanta, Georgia. Mandy, what do you think? Are we excited to do this or what? I'm so excited, uh, particularly because we get a lot of crap from people that say that 
uh, defense attorney. We hate defense attorneys, and defense attorneys hate us, and we don't. We love defense attorneys. They do an important job, and here's Noah. Noah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is a big deal, Mandy and Eric. <laughs> a big deal. Love it. Love it. Love it. Good to, good to see you, Noah. You and I talk a lot by text, and uh, once or twice by telephone, but this is really exciting to see you. Really excited to get deep into who you are and what makes you tick. And, you know, you've done such a good job in responding to a lot of the criticism that we uh, sometimes receive. And people criticize us by saying that we're wrong and you either defend us and say we're right or you challenge those that really don't have the legal knowledge that you have throughout this Murdoch matter. So we're going to get to it quickly. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Who, you, who are you? Tell us about your family. Tell us about how long you've been a lawyer. Well, like you, I grew up um, outside of Philadelphia. I came to Atlanta when I was 18 to go to college and basically stayed in the South ever since then. Um, really had no idea that I wanted to be a lawyer, even in college, didn't have an idea. And um, the, the person I was- What was your major? Political science. Um, easiest major at Emory. So, you know, you didn't have to write a paper. It was pretty easy. I was like, oh, I'll just do that. Emory's not easy. Emory's not easy, no. Emory's not easy, yeah. But um, someone suggested, you know, the, the person I was dating at the time was like, we should go to law school. And I was like, that sounds like a good idea. We ended up breaking up and not going to law school together, which was a great thing because it led me to my um, wonderful wife, Jen. But, you know, went to law school and, and Mandy, like you, I am a huge introvert. Um, which is weird because there are a lot of trial lawyers who are introverts. And so the thought of getting up and speaking in front of people and just speaking in general uh, to people was really never something I thought I'd do. I thought I'd be the behind the scenes kind of guy. And just through some internships and experience um, led me to where I, I started practice. I interned in juvenile court. I worked with kids who were deprived, meaning they weren't they were neglected or they were delinquent, meaning they were charged with you know acts that would be crimes if they were adults worked for a juvenile court judge who ended up on TV for a while, Judge Hatchett. And from there, I made it to a prosecutor's office to have an internship. And um, my intern supervisor, who's one of my good friends, he was a, a year older than me, just one day we were doing something in court and he goes, yeah, you either got it or you don't, you got it and you should do this. And that's how I started my career. I said, okay. And that's how I started my career. I was a prosecutor in DeKalb County, which is the second largest county in the state of Georgia for about seven and a half years um, total, prosecuted misdemeanors for the first couple of years, and then ended up prosecuting felonies, mostly child abuse cases. And I left the office um, a little bit after my son was born to go into private practice, criminal defense with my partner, Peter Ross, who started his career doing criminal defense, and then kind of moved into the personal injury. So I came and took over the criminal part of the practice. Uh, he took over the personal injury part of the practice. And then um, about 15 years ago, we added an immigration part of our practice. So you're like Ronnie and me, you have a partner that you've stayed together a long time, which is very, very rare. You know, the rest of the world doesn't understand that. But Two lawyers staying together as partners, you know, for anything in, in excess of five years is pretty rare because lawyers have big egos. They disagree sometimes over money, over cases. You know, you made a statement that really in interested me. You said that a lot of trial lawyers are introverts, actually. I think so. Um, I think more than you than you realize. Uh, you know, I've talked to a bunch of people. That, I mean, they're they're definitely the extroverts, but a lot of us. I mean, I, I'm exhausted after a trial. I just you know kind of want to go back and and 
chill out and relax. Um, but it's something where, you know, when I'm in court, it, it's not like a turning it on, but I know what I need to do. And it's walking into a courtroom, I'm comfortable. Like, Walking into a party, I you know it's sometimes you're just like whoa, there's a lot of people here and yeah, uh, you, you know there's all these sounds and noises and I'm like I just want to find somebody I know and talk to them sometimes, uh, you know that's more my personality. I like that you know don't love the small talk, you know really enjoy the deeper conversations. You're talking to two people right here. We have a sign. I have a sign that says I don't do. You know, I'm a big Larry David fan, and he has this thing. I don't do stop and chats. And yeah. Mandy and I were at a function, and I looked at her, and you know, she's very vivacious and bubbly and everything, but she's also an introvert. And uh, you know, it took us a while to start to be able to make small talk and do stop and chats. What do you think, Mandy? You agree? Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I was about being an introvert and a lawyer because when I was at the point of my life trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I was always pretty good at like making an argument on paper. I was always good at writing. I knew that. Um, didn't know if I was good at anything else, but I always just kind of thought I can't be a lawyer because I can't picture myself arguing in a courtroom. And I thought that all like in high school, mm -hmm. I just thought all lawyers were trial lawyers. I didn't know that there was like, that's just a small fraction. You would have been an amazing brief writer. You would have written such good briefs. Oh my gosh. I know. But I, I just, I just immediately thought that that wasn't possible for me. Cause I was like, I couldn't stand up in front of a courtroom every day and make a, I just go blank when I'm in front of people. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it, it, you get more used to it. And it's funny that you say that about small talk, because when I started calling Eric back in 2021, uh, that's what I really liked about him because most Southerners, it just takes a very long time to get them to get to the point of like, you're trying to, Eric would just get on the phone and say, Hey, here's how it is, blah, 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 blah. And then, <laughs> and then also a lot of my sources at the time, wanted to talk after they had something to say, you know, blah, blah. And they, and it would just be like hours on the phone with these people. And I, I, I like all these people, but I, right. You're efficient. I don't like to waste time, but I love that Eric, I love that Eric would just be like, okay, that's what I said. Bye. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that that's the Philly and Eric. That's, you know, the Philly way, which is sort of you get to the point and then you're done. And, you know, that's I like it. I like efficiency. That's how I am, too. I'm a, I'm a really big into time efficiency. Um, the funny thing is, if I I always thought about being an investigative journalist like that always kind of, you know, intrigued me with what I do. Um, yeah. So, and get to get back to your point, Eric. Yeah. So I've been with my partner for over 20 years and I always say it's like marriage without the sex, you know, you're in this relationship. I, uh, there's some things that he does that drive me crazy. I'm sure there's lots of things that I do that drive him crazy, but you know, I use his strengths for part of the practice. He uses my strengths for the other part of the practice. We understand that together we are better than we would be separate. And same like Ronnie and me. Yeah. We started our firm with just Peter and myself and one assistant. And now we have, you know, five lawyers who work for us and 14 support staff. Wow. Wow. And most of our a majority, 10 of our support staff are, are bilingual. We have a huge immigration practice that we, you know, built really before people were before criminal lawyers did immigration. Um, and they kind of go together. So it's very important to have that. 
So, so why, why criminal law? You know, I, I interned at the Washington, D.C. Public Defender's Office in my last year of college, and most of the people who work at the D.C. Public Defender's Office were former Supreme Court clerks. And, you know, I was watching some really heavy lifting in, in the Superior Court there in D.C. on criminal cases. And it just, I, I don't think I could take that emotion of getting close to a defendant and then either you know, fleeing that defendant or, or they would lose a trial and then they go away. And it, it, I just couldn't see myself doing criminal law. What, what was inside of you that said, Hey, you know what? I can do this. I can handle this hard emotional stuff, whether these people are wrongfully charged or they did do something, but the government's being too oppressive on them. What was there something in your childhood, high school, college that made you want to do criminal law? So n not necessarily. When I started out as a prosecutor, I'm like, this is kind of fun. And then the question is, what do you do? How long do you stay a prosecutor for the rest of your life? Like someone like Creighton, y you know, when my wife and I were talking about starting a family, which is very difficult when you work for the government and you want, you know, you both decide that, you know, she wants to stay home with our children in the beginning. And so it was either a career prosecutor, maybe go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, which I interviewed with, or make the switch. And there was a time that I wasn't ready to make the switch. And I'm like, I, I don't know that I can defend criminal cases. And then what I realized was- I, How do you make that mental, how do you mentally make the switch? Yeah, well, so I thought I was a pretty fair prosecutor. I mean, I prosecuted lots of child abuse cases. Um, I dismissed lots of cases too. I mean, my last year in the DA's office, I mean, in seven months, I tried 14 child molestation cases, which is a lot. That's two a month for, you know, seven months. And um, the year before, I had a lot of people go to prison for a long time. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if it's right for me. And then I realized not every prosecutor is as fair as I am. And I can do my job and, you know, do it with integrity um, and do it with honor and help people and that's what you realize and what you realize eric and mandy you'll, you you know this from talking to victims and victims families sometimes it's it's i mean it's, it's always about your client but sometimes it's about their family too it's the the grandma you know who brought me a picture of her grandson who she raised who was is like broke my heart he was 15 charged with armed robbery and in georgia 15 armed robberies 10 years mandatory minimum prison and they treat you as an adult. And she brought me a picture of him when he was like seven years old, um, playing Little League, running the bases. And no matter what he was charged with, and you know, no matter what his culpability was, and he may have been a party to the crime, meaning you know he sort of helped it happen. You know, he's a 15 year old. He's a kid. Right. That grandma was always going to. We don't want to write the book. We don't want to write the book on a 15 right. year old. You know, there's a lot of chapters left. Exactly. And that grandma looks at him not as that 15 year old but that seven year old and you know that's one of the things i realized is there's there's always family members um that are out there too that this impacts way as much as it does really the defendant um and there are some oppressive prosecutors there are some people who don't get treated fairly in the system there are police officers who are not ethical there are you know judges who don't treat people fairly too. So, um, you know, I always say sometimes we're there for mitigation. Sometimes we're there for mitigate for a vindication. So sometimes you're just trying to mitigate the damage, and sometimes you're trying to to vindicate your client and say we did not do this. What kind of cases do you not take? Like, yeah, Mandy and I were curious about that. Or are there any? How do you decide? Yeah. yeah. How do you decide that? Some people don't take pedophile cases. I so. take really messy cases. Any case? Any pe pedophiles? I, I, do, I mean, I do. I Actually, I do a lot of appellate work there. 
I represent people charged with child molestation all the time. Wow. wow. I do. How about, you know, some people say I won't represent a rapist or a right. thief or, you know. Sure. Well, let, let's start with my general principle. My general principle is if I start to judge my clients and make make judgments on their actions, then it's time for me to quit what I'm doing. Like my job is not to make moral judgments on my clients. I can't. You know, it's kind of like think about the ER doctor who sees somebody who's been shot all over. That ER doctor doesn't say, well, you know, is this Eric Bland or is this, you know, some gangbanger? And, you know, do I really want to do the surgery the best I can? You just got to, I can't make moral judgments. Um, and when I do, that's when I need to quit. That's interesting. That doesn't mean I take every case. There are some cases I just don't like. Um, I stay away from cartel drug cases. I don't like those. Uh, you know, I stay away from anything that could, you know, endanger my safety. And there are some people that I just don't want to represent. There are some, you know, cases every once in a while where there was a, a case here in Atlanta where a teenager with mental health issues lured these two other teenagers behind a grocery store and killed them. And I was like, you know what? I don't, it's just too close to home. It literally was close to home. And I, you know, the kids were my kid's age at the time. And I'm like, I'm just going to stay away from that. Um, you know, I stayed out of cases like the Young Thug case, if you know about that, the YSL case, which is a huge case in Atlanta. It's been going on since January. I stayed out of that case, not because of the content, but because I didn't want to spend a year yeah. in trial with the same lawyers. That that would just drive me nuts. And, you know, kind of to get back to the criminal part, you know, criminal moves quicker, as you know, Eric. It is not, you know, we're not dealing with motion after motion and deposition and then another motion and reply, it, it just moves quicker and it's actually better for my brain. I, I realized as, as much as I sometimes would like to put the stress away, to be like, you know what, no more criminal. Like, I don't need the stress in my life. I'll just go deal with our civil practice because we have a ton of civil cases that need to be tried. I realized my brain's just not wired for that as much as it is for what I do. I This is kind of where I thrive. Well, are you known for a particular discipline like Jack Swirling here in our neck of the woods, they, you know, he's Mr. Murder. You know, they, every time they write an article about him, they say, oh, he's tried 300 murder cases, which that's a lot of murder cases. <laughs> yeah, he's 77. Yeah. He's 77. He's a good friend. But what I'm saying is, you know, that's a tremendous amount of trial murder yeah. cases. I mean, it's just. Are you known for something or are you more a generalist like I am? I, it's not that it's. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not it's it's more general criminal. I mean, you know, look, I represent my son's friends on speeding tickets and then I'll go handle a murder case or a child molestation case or a rape case. I would say that um, lawyers know that I handle a messy case. A messy case doesn't bother me. It kind of excites me sometimes. Not excites like in a creepy way, just like the how do I deal with this? Right. Like right. and um, I guess I'm known to be creative, uh, you know, in cases that seem unwinnable. And um, I do a lot of appellate work, too. So it kind of, you know, goes hand in hand that sometimes in, in, a, in a case, I'll try something that a, another lawyer maybe hasn't tried because I have already thought about it as an appellate issue. You make a, do you do a lot of appellate arguments? I do. Yeah. So I handle a lot of appeals on cases that I haven't tried. Mostly those are murders or, you know, child sex crimes where other lawyers make mistakes. Um, you know, they don't do their job. They're ineffective. We get a lot of that. Lawyers who just should not be handling, you know, cases that where people can go to prison for the rest of their life. Um, that happens all the time. So I have a question. Noah was one of our first advertisers on MMP back in the day. I was. 
a long time ago in 2021, like we just had a handful of advertisers. How did you hear about MMP? What made you like it? What made you be a fan? And then of Cup of Justice, how'd you get interested in this? Sure. So I can't remember, I can't remember if my wife, Jen, told me about MMP to begin with. You know, Murdoch obviously bled into Georgia just because of the sensationalism of the story. But I was like, and, and I am, my wife says this all the time. She's like, you're such a cynic. I'm like, I'm a cynic, but I'm right. Like 90% plus of the time, probably like, probably like you two. And I was like, something's not right about this case. And this is when it was got first reported, you know, that they got killed and then the roadside. I'm like, something just doesn't sound right. And, and, you know, there was a big case in Dunwoody where it's the Dunwoody daycare murder case where a wife had her husband killed. And I remember my wife saying, you know, oh, they love, I was like, nah, it's a love triangle. And she's like, you don't know what you're talking about. These everybody knows them, says they were in love. And I'm like, love triangle. And of course it was a love triangle. So Murdoch, you know, definitely interested me in the story. And then I think Jen told me about the podcast and I listened to it and I was like, oh, this is, this is really good. I listened to Undisclosed, um, you know, I, I listened to a couple seasons of that, including Joey Watkins case, which we can talk about later. And sometimes like the, I hate to say it bored me, but it bored me because it was just sometimes too deep. And there was just something about MMP that kind of grabbed my attention. So I started listening in the beginning when everybody's making fun of your voice, Mandy, you know, and so I'm a, a beginning listener. And and by the way, what you have done, and I'm going to say you, because it is really you first with Liz and then Eric, is just incredibly amazing. And, you know, by, by saying I'm proud of you, I don't want to sound patronizing. I've enjoyed watching what you've built, and it's really incredible. And I don't think people realize what it takes to build a podcast, especially to the level that you have with the amount of listeners you have. It's it's incredible. So uh, hats off to you, or cups up to you, I guess is a better way to say for what you've done. And, and so I just I became an early listener. I saw you needed some sponsors, and it was just one of those things where I was like, yeah, this is the right thing to do um, because I enjoyed the show and I wanted to help out. And then um, I, I forget how long I sponsored in the beginning, and then I, I kind of tailed off on it. And I think by the time I tried to sponsor again, you guys were like too big. It was, Love that. It was like you guys were really big. So then I sponsored Cup of Justice for a little bit. And, you know, I remember the early shows when Eric came on. And, as, you know, as soon as Eric came on, like, Eric, I don't sound like I'm from <laughs> Philly anymore. You obviously do. And as soon as you start talking, there's like this familiarity that I'm like, oh, man, I'm, I got to listen to this guy a little bit, you know, and and you sound like, you know, the people I grew up with. And then of course, Cup of Justice, I think is an interesting, an interesting take on sort of to be able to have these conversations without it really being, you know, scripted isn't the right word, without it being as focused, a little bit more loose. Yeah. Um, I remember when Eric started on those first few episodes, getting so many messages and tweets from people saying, I like Eric. He has to be from Philly, right? Like people, people immediately knew you were from Philly the first time you yeah. started talking. It was great. Uh, I want to get back to this, but uh, we should take a commercial break. So we will be right back. 
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. It has done wonders for our seasonal allergies. We recently started feeling the effects of spring. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, sinus congestion, and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have any allergies? It is time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Okay, so... I want to talk to you, Noah, about the Joey Watkins case. Can you walk us through it and how you got involved? And it's just very fascinating as we in the Murdoch case are currently dealing. We're not in appeals, but what phase are we in? I don't even know. Um, what do you call whatever we're in right now? No, I mean, you're in the sort of the direct appeal because you're still in the motion for new trial. Yeah. Direct appeal. Yes. Um, so tell us about Joey. So, Joey Watkins uh, was a teenager up in a small town in North Georgia called Rome, Floyd County. And, you know, if you asked Joey what kind of kid he was, he would probably say he was a little bit of a rebel and a little bit of an ass to a bunch of people. But, you know, that's just kind of the, he was a teenager. Rome is a small town and he Dated, everybody dated everybody. I mean, his trial, like everybody who testified had dated somebody else. But there, there's a gentleman by the name of Isaac Dawkins who was killed, and he was killed while driving his truck down a road, like a four-lane divided highway, um, you know, median in the middle with grass. And they didn't have any suspects. You know, there was, there was a car that was in the area, a blue car, and that's not what Joey drove, but people just started saying, you know, Joey, Joey, Joey. And the reason was, is because Isaac dated Joey's ex-girlfriend. Joey had moved on from his ex-girlfriend, but you know, so Joey's name comes up, he's investigated by the local police. The local police have nothing on him. And they, in essence, closed the investigation. And then what happened was the family went to the county police. So the local police, meaning the city police, the county obviously has controlled the entire county. And there's, um, detective, his name's Stanley Sutton, who ended up passing away recently. And I mean, you could do a whole year on Stanley Sutton and his cases and what he's done, I think, to people. You know, Stanley starts really confirmation 
bias against Joey and and just starts jamming these pieces together to make them fit and they didn't fit and Joey gets charged with murder and and Joey would tell you he wasn't worried because he didn't do it he just really wasn't worried so he I have a good... question really quick yeah I'm sorry um I hate interrupting people but what was the way of homicide? So he got shot. Sorry, I should have said that. So oh, okay, shot in his car. Isaac is driving down a road, and uh, he veers to his. He's driving. You know, let's say I can't remember if it's north, south, east, west. Anyway, he's driving in a, in you know one direction. He veers across the median and then ends up in the woods on the other side of the highway. Okay, and he dies of gunshot. There's an eyewitness. That eyewitness says there's a blue car that was behind. Um, Isaac's car, Isaac's truck. So the only car in the area is his blue car. And by the way, Joey didn't drive a blue car. He drove a pickup truck. And that's all they had. So they have Isaac dead in his truck. They have um, a, a really just kind of a horrible police investigation at the scene. Nobody really knew what they were doing. We don't have pictures of everything that we need. And that's that's what they had. And so um, Stanley Sutton, to kind of go back, starts, you know, it's Joey, it's Joey, it's Joey. And this is, you know, a long time ago when cell phones, people had cell phones, but cell phone evidence was, you know, sort of in its infancy. And the important part to know is that the, during the Joey's trial, the testimony came out that, you know, Joey was near his house when he made a call off a, that pinged off a cell phone tower. That cell phone tower and the murder happened in another place. So, you know, house here, murder here. The problem was that Joey's lawyers didn't really understand the cell phone evidence, nor did the state. And they just, nobody talked about time distance. So time distance, it was 8.2 miles, you know, roughly from where Joey was to where the murder happened. He would have had to, you know, have leave the area where his cell phone pinged, drove down a highway, done a U-turn because he, he had to get to the other side of the highway, killed Isaac, and he would have had to do that in four minutes and 30 seconds. So 8.2 miles in four minutes and 30 seconds. Wow. Impossible, right? Yeah. I mean, you'd yeah. have to. Right. doesn't make any sense. By spaceship. And by the way, there was construction, there were cars, there was traffic. It was just, but um, nobody, you know, nobody understood that. And nobody explained that to the jury. And Joey got convicted. I mean, he got convicted at trial. There, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that the DA's office did, including burying a, um, ballistics report that really hurt Joey. They, the, the allegation was that Joey had killed two dogs, um, one of the dogs being Isaac's dog, and uh, the other one was what they called the graveyard dog, which was a dog that was found near the grave of Isaac, which was, really wasn't near. It was found in a ditch on the side of the road. And the DA's office kept saying that Joey's the one who did it, and this ballistics matched, and it turns out the ballistics didn't match. Time out. How often does that happen? You just said they buried a report, and that you know, that just made Mandy and me just go to, into orbit. I mean, does that happen alive? Is it, is it common? Do you see it? Is it accidental? Is it intentional? Well, in this case, it appears intentional um, because it was delivered to the district attorney's office during the trial. And of course, everyone's like, well, we didn't know about it. I would say that deliberate bearing happens a lot less than intentional shading. And intentional shading, although I think can be worse, you know, I can give you a quick example. I, I handled an appeal of a guy who got convicted of, of rape in um, Savannah area. 
And when the GBI agent came and testified, she testified that there was DNA found in the rape kit and that it was likely improbable sperm. So likely improbable. To me, that means like there's a good chance. And the way that you determine if there was sperm in the DNA is actually pretty easy. You'll look under a microscope. They didn't look under a microscope. They used a procedure that wasn't approved. This is the GBI, so the Georgia Bureau of Investigations. Instead of looking under a microscope, which takes like 10 seconds, they used a procedure that was not approved. And when we had the GBI supervisor come testify at the motion for new trial hearing, she admitted that they didn't look under the microscope, that the procedure that they used was not approved, and that likely and probable doesn't even mean 50%, which is crazy. And by the way, my client lost his appeal. He lost his appeal because the Court of Appeals in Georgia said that that's not enough to show. You know, we allege that the, the lawyer was ineffective for not getting their own DNA expert. And the court's like, yep, you lose. And the Supreme Court of Georgia failed to hear it. So there's a lot of shading, I think, that happens more than intentional hiding. But to get back to Joey, those are the two big issues. So he gets convicted. He gets life in prison. And he starts to write the Georgia Innocence Project. And back then, the Georgia Innocence Project maybe had like $100,000 in funding. It's a project that's designed to help exonerate people who are wrongly convicted. And they're like, look, we're not going to take your case because you had a good lawyer and there's no DNA. And we don't take non-DNA cases. Back then, they were only taking rape cases with DNA because they could definitively prove that somebody didn't do it. So 12 years later, 12 years after, and Joey lost his appeal. He lost his habeas. Um, I think he lost a federal habeas. He was- Explain to our listeners how you go from state court after the Supreme Court denies an appeal and then you you migrate to federal court. Everybody says, you know, habeas corpus. What does that mean? And then also we heard Dick the other day mention, well, if we get into our appeals or go to federal court, explain that to our listeners. So in Georgia, you have the right to direct appeal, which means you file a motion for new trial. You allege we do things a little bit differently in Georgia than South Carolina. You have to allege ineffective assistance of counsel, which means your lawyer sucked at the motion for new trial, then you can allege it on appeal. And then once your direct appeal rights are over, meaning the Georgia Court of Appeals or Supreme Court has ruled, you have no more direct appeal. You can't appeal again. So you get one shot. So in in Georgia, you file a motion for new trial. You allege that your trial counsel was ineffective. And then you go to the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court, depending on what kind of case it is. Once that's over, once your appeal is over, you have no more direct appeal rights. You can file a petition for habeas corpus, either in state court, which you have to do within four years, or in federal court, which you have to do in a year. The, the time things are, are a little bit interesting. Most people don't file federal habeases. Um, they're very hard to win. So most people just file a state habeas. But Joey was 100% out of appeal rights. He had nothing left. And he goes to the Innocence Project. They, they say no. He keeps writing them year after year after year. And they say no. And then in, I think it was like 2014, they agree to take the case. And they're convinced that he's innocent based on the cell phone because it's just so, it's just clear. I mean, you in Murdoch, the cell phone evidence put Alec in the area of the murder and it showed where he went. That's exactly what yes. I was thinking. Yeah. Put him in yeah. it, right? This is the opposite. Yeah. This is the opposite. It right. puts him right. out of it. It's just not, right. it's not possible it's just not possible and, and what year was what year was the murder sorry 
Early 2000s? Yeah, I think it was 2000 is when okay. his trial started, 2000. So around the, a lot of this is reminding me of the Anand Syed case, which I'm sure you're familiar with because of the Undisclosed podcast. Um, right. And the cell phone evidence was shaky in that case. And yeah, it, it, it sounds very similar, but continue. So Adnan was season one of Undisclosed, yes. and they yeah. were looking for people for season two. And the Innocence Project was like, we're going to submit our case to to Susan Simpson and see if they'll pick it up. And they did. So Joey's case is season two. That's awesome. Of Undisclosed. And they just did an incredible job of really digging into all the problems with the case. The witnesses who were lying, Stanley Sutton, who, you know, just was known to get people, you know, he would, he'd put a, a, a reward picture, you know, in the jail of like, hey, you know, we need information on this case. And then guess what? Jail snitches would come That's out. That's horrible. Because they're, they're, there's a direct reward. He, this is the craziest thing. I, you know, I, I always forget this. And, and the lawyers who worked on the appeal forget it. During the preliminary hearing, they the the state had wiretaps, but there was allegations that Stanley had done some other taping that was outside of the wiretap. And Joey's lawyer asked the detective about whether there was any other like kind of an illegal wiretap. And no joke, the guy took the fifth. The detective took. Is he still employed? Is he still is he still employed? He's, he's dead now. Okay. But the detective took he took the fifth during the preliminary hearing, and I was when I was. Looking at this, I was like, this is huge. And, the, you know, the, the appellate lawyers were so focused on the appeal, like you sometimes you don't pick up stuff like that. I'm like, this is ridiculous. And by the way, he didn't testify at the trial. The lead detective did not testify at trial. It's crazy. Crazy. So Joey gets convicted. They believe this other guy. There's there's so many crazy parts of this story. They believe this other guy named Mark Free was also involved in the murder. He gets charged. His case gets severed, meaning like split off from Joey's, and he goes to trial and gets acquitted. So one guy gets acquitted who's allegedly with Joey who committed the murder or one of them shot. And so Mark gets acquitted. Joey gets convicted. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So anyway, the Innocence Project takes it to Undisclosed and they start digging through and they literally knock door to door. Um, you know, and start talking to people that don't want to talk to them. They start talking to jurors who don't want to talk to them. And they finally meet, they, they find one juror who at first didn't want to talk to them and then starts talking and mentions sort of like off the cuff while I, I you know, the cell phone evidence while I drove, I drove it like during deliberations. And they're like, oh, okay. I mean, they knew how big this was, but they didn't want to freak her out. And so they kind of just ask information. And it turns out that um, this juror on a weekend drove from what she thought was point A to point B. The problem was she picked the wrong spot. She didn't know where point A and point B were. She drove it when there was no construction. She drove it um, on the weekend when there was no traffic. And she drove it in the opposite direction, meaning she didn't have to make the U-turn that Joey would have had to make to, to make all this happen. So she just kind of drove you know, from where Isaac was shot to where Joey's house was. And she's like, oh, no, it can be done. And um, she brought that into the jury room. There's a question of, of how many people she told, if anybody. Um, we believe that she definitely told other people, but it's still, it's huge information, which is also, again. Yeah, that's internal, inter that's internal interference. Right. And so 
the Innocence Project files a, a new habeas, basically saying, like, we could not have discovered this before. We didn't know this before. We, you know, this is new information. We get one more shot. And the court dismissed it and said, nope, too bad. You're procedurally barred. You should have raised it before. And so that gets appealed to the Georgia Supreme Court. And they say, nope, we're not going to hear the case. So Joey's, again, out of luck. Out of luck. And out of luck. And the lawyer um, named Ben Goldberg, he's a private lawyer like myself, who volunteered his time pro bono to help the Innocence Project, just, you know, filed a motion to reconsider in front of the Supreme Court and just laid it out again and, and, and cited a case. And they said, all right, we'll, we'll hear it. And all they were hearing is, was whether we could then proceed with the habeas. And so they heard it and they said, you know what? We're going to let you proceed with habeas. So then we had- That a, is amazing for them to reverse, because yeah. that's rare. They reversed themselves. Uh, uh, yes, extremely rare. Like normally, like I filed a motion to reconsider a couple of weeks ago and someone's like, that was really good. And I was like, yeah, thanks. And it got denied like the next day. They rubber stamp it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that gave Joey the opportunity to file a habeas. And of course, the the attorney general's office is, you know, they, they don't, our attorney general's office, like they don't care. They don't care that there's this evidence. They they just don't care. They don't care that this juror did this. And the big issue, right, is that this is a violation of Joey's constitutional rights because what you have is unsworn testimony in the jury room. That's, you know, which is this one juror. It's unsworn, uncross-examined. If she told any other juror anything, you know, that would impact their verdict. But more importantly, it, it impacts her verdict. So she is now bringing something into the jury room by herself by saying, oh, I did it and it can be done without sort of the cross-examination. And of course, if she tells it to any other juror, then it's even worse. But, but by the way, the standard, we had to prove actual harm. So, you know, I know you guys talked about that in the last cup of justice, but yeah, the actual harm or actual prejudice was the standard that the habeas court made us, um, and I say us, I wasn't part of the case at that time. I knew about it. And, and it, this is how it all came about. I knew about Joey's case. I knew my friend Ben was working on it. They were doing their habeas corpus case in North Georgia, up near the Tennessee line. And I just happened to be up there for a case. It's like two hours outside of Atlanta. So I see all the people from the Innocence Project. And I said, what are, you, what are y'all doing here? And they're like, oh, we're arguing Joey's case. I'm like, well, how's it going? And they're like, it's gone pretty good. I said, okay. I was like, well, if you if you win this proceeding, I'll try the case with you, Ben, for free. And he's like, really? I'm like, yep. And you know, lo and behold, I forget how long after that he calls me up. He's like, remember when I saw you up in Walker County? I was like, yeah. He's like, remember what you said? I was like, yep. He goes, oh, well, we won. I was like, all right. Well, I'm I'm in now. And so that's how I joined the case, um, and that's how I joined you know Joey's defense. How many years ago was that? Uh, the whole process, um, he, his habeas was granted in 2022. So his habeas was granted in 2022. We secured him bond in the beginning of 2023, and his case was dismissed at the end of 2023. And they're not going to retry that. Well, they were. Um, they really were. They and were. They, they were. And there is no doubt in my mind that the podcast helped Joey get a new trial. I, I think it really did. And, you know, it's interesting because the people wanted to cover sort of our representation of Joey. And, you know, when, when we talk about media and, and how media gets into a case and they, they wanted to kind of do a behind the scenes. And I'm like, absolutely not. 
you know, like I, I, I'm not letting a camera into our discussions. Right. I'm not letting, you know, anyone. Well, we we won't air it till after. I'm like, no, it's just no, you know. And it's it. We know Harpootly and Griffin did it. Um, in in with, you know, their trial situation, they showed some of that in the Fox documentary. I just found that to be incredibly offensive. Yeah, no, I mean, it it was like there's not even a question that we're gonna do it because you know this is Joey's life. Like, I don't stakes are high. Yeah, it, it's like what like what am I gonna act for you guys? Like, I'm not gonna <laughs> say what I'm really gonna say on, on a right. camera. Like, I would never do that. And you're not coming into our strategy session because. By the way, anything I tell you as a reporter is not privileged. Right. You know, you could be subpoenaed. Privileged, right. It's And you're not giving up your work product. I'm not giving, yeah. And so yeah, I think they were kind of mad about that. But, um, you know, I, I and I, I can't remember if, Mandy, if it was you or Liz sort of talking about playing, you know, chess and it's, or or even you, Eric, and, you know, it's, if it is chess, it's three-dimensional chess. It's not just on a board. It is every, every thing that we do, everything that I do on a case, you know, I, I think about from every possible angle. And my whole thing with Joey was how do we, how do we convince the DA not to retry this case? And, uh, you know, for a while, I didn't know that it would happen. And it was a new DA. So she had no really, you know, skin in the game for this wrongful conviction, but trying to, you know, convince her why Joey shouldn't be recharged was really difficult. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we come back from the break. All right, so how, how do you do that? Is it over time? Is it by wearing them down? Is it by paper, conference room meetings, mediation? What do you do? Yeah, uh, it's multifaceted, Eric. Um, I, it's, it's multifaceted. Do I want to tell you exactly how I did it? Not no, really. Don't tell uh, me how you made the sausage. Okay. Yeah. No. It. It. It was. Uh, look. You. You have to know who your audience is in addition to knowing your case. And what I would say is that you know we had a very good strategy of the motions that we were going to file and how how we were going to file the motions. And there were a lot. I mean, there were. You know, I think we filed like twenty motions to challenge certain evidence to you know to get in certain things. And then it really was just, you know, presenting the cell phone evidence. One of the things I learned from Murdoch was about the CART team. You know, we have cell phone experts here, but I didn't know about a CART team. And so I reached out to a CART expert. And, you know, I told the DA's office, I was like, don't trust me. Go talk to somebody from the FBI who's in the CART team. You know, ask them. And that's one of the things, you know, because they're not going to believe my expert no matter who they are. I'm like, but you go do it. And I think, you know, when it just kind of push came to shove, they really realized that the cell phone evidence was just insurmountable. And so Joey's- What did it feel like, Noah? <sighs> you know- What did it feel like when they, when you made that phone call and, you know, to, was that the most gratifying feeling you've ever had in your career? I, I think it was. It was, uh, like, I kind of, I had a feeling it was coming and then I had to let the team know. And you know the, the the team was just so involved too. I don't. I didn't want to give them false hope. I would. I never give a client the news until it's signed and filed. Like so, we were all all the lawyers were on the phone. I'm like, okay, it's it's going to happen. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, the case is going to get dismissed. Well, can we call Joey? I'm like, no. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, until I see a filed copy, because I can't ever give a client false hope. I mean, that's the worst thing you could do to somebody. You imagine being like, I think your case is going to get dismissed, Eric. Oh, I was wrong. Now you got a good trial for murder. You know, hey, Mandy, 
Remember when you're going to go to prison for life? Now you're not. Oh, wait, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I thought it was going to happen. So unless it's done, I don't tell a client. And, you know, while we we're the lawyers were all on the phone, you know, we, we it came in. And, and so Claire Gilbert, who has been with the Innocence Project forever and really started this and was on the podcast a lot with Susan. I'm like, all right, let's get Joey on the phone and Claire, you do it. And so she's so Joey and she just starts talking. But I was like, Joe, your case is dismissed. I was like, you're, you know, it's like she was going on and on. I'm like, Joey, your case is dismissed. Like, let's just tell him. Uh, we got to then you can tell him whatever you want. But like, give him the news. And and he I, he just really couldn't believe it. How's it. What's he doing now? Is he trying to get his life back? How do yeah. you get your life back after 23 years? So his family um, owned a car business, a used car business. He's been working there since he got out. He was he was such a great person, even when he was in custody, that, you know, for the last few years, he was down in um, where the Georgia State Patrol services their cars. And Joey's, you know, knows how to work on cars. So he was like kind of he got out of jail during the day to go work. He was kind of in work release. And so he actually worked. He worked on police cars. And they loved it. We actually had people come up and testify for his bond hearing who were law enforcement officers to say, you know, this guy works on our cars every day. He's the greatest guy. We trust him. And so he's back in the car business. Okay. This is the first Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's that he spent out in 22 years. He went in at 20 and out at 42. Wow. And, you know, I was actually messaging with Mandy one day, and, and we were just kind of joking around, and she mentioned... Joey's case, I was like, you know what? Like, you're right, Mandy. I have to, I have to reach out to him and and just see how he's doing. And you know, I sent him pies for Thanksgiving so that he could, you know, have a little something extra special. Um, he went to, I, I called him up when the Braves were in the playoffs, and I was like, you ever been to a Braves playoff game? He's like, nope. I'm like, all right, well, come on down. You're, you're coming tonight, and just to be able to get to experience life again. And he's not bitter. Um, you know, I don't know that I wouldn't be bitter, but he's grateful. Um, did he sue? Um, did he do a civil suit? You know, civil suit would be really difficult in Georgia. It's it's very, very difficult, but we're trying to get him um, compensation through the legislature. Like, they'll have to pass a special law. All right. I have one I have one more legal question, and then I want, we're going to get into your ultra marathon running and, what, you know, how long you've been Kojak for. But <laughs> when you do ineffective assistance of counsel on a client, have you ever assisted in that like that always seems to me like the clients criticizing your representation but you want it to happen so that they have a chance do you ever testify and say yeah i could have done this and i probably should have done this or you don't cooperate in that ineffective assistance argument that always is interesting to me yeah no i mean you have so you know just for the listeners ineffective assistance means your lawyer didn't do a, you know a, a good job which could be a constitutional violation anytime i have a client who gets convicted you know of a serious offense i say go find another lawyer get another lawyer for the appeal that way they can allege ineffective if i've done anything wrong if I've done something wrong, I'll 100% admit it. There are certain lawyers that won't admit it. I, I'm, I'm working on an appeal where one lawyer represented two people charged with murder. And one of them was accused of murdering their child. And the other one was accused of what's called second degree murder for leaving the child in the care of the mother who was abusive, which is just impossible. It's not ethically possible to do that because the defense for the one spouse is conflict. I didn't know that she was abusing the kids. Like that would be the defense. And that lawyer just refused to admit any. I mean, she she 
was horrible in what she said. If I make a mistake, I'll admit it's a mistake. You have to. And we all make mistakes. Mandy wants to ask you some questions about Murdoch and what you think of the yeah. lawyering and, you know, the prosecution. Well, to start out, um, I think something that has been very baffling to me, and I don't know about you, Noah, but watching uh, people respond to all of this Becky stuff that's been going on and their accusations of jury tampering and the press acting like it was guaranteed that he was going to have a, a new trial and like it was an easy thing. Uh, can you explain like, and you just did, how, how difficult is it if you aren't a, a person like Alex Murdoch, who has all the money and power in the world, how difficult is it to get a new trial after you're convicted of murder? Oh, it's it's almost impossible. You know, you're, you're no longer presumed innocent. You're, you know, presumed guilty. The, the burden is that is there any evidence really to support the verdict? And, you know, every time I find an error in a case, it's always like, well, yeah, you're right. There's error, but it's harmless error, which means it didn't impact the verdict. You know, I'll I'll come home after a day and I'll tell my wife, I'm like, man, I just lost an appeal. And she's like, yeah, no offense, you lose every appeal, which isn't true. I don't lose every appeal, but she knows how hard it is. I mean, you, you spend all this time um, working on appeals and, and you're like, you think you have a good, you know, a good issue. And the court's like, yep, it's harmless. Or, you know, yeah, we're just not going to give you a new trial. And it happens all the time. Right. And I was I was surprised even seeing headlines this week um, acting like Judge Toll has suddenly made this an uphill battle. Like it was <laughs> he was sliding his way to a new trial. It's always it's it's an uphill battle. That's the way that the system's designed. Once you are convicted by a jury of your peers, it's really, really hard to get a new trial. And I felt like I was in crazy land watching people just assume, okay, let's get ready for a new trial. And like, what is going on here? Yeah, no, I mean, and, and the problem is people don't really understand the law and how the process works. And how difficult it is. Um, like, I just kind yeah. of knew, I mean, I've listened to a lot of Undisclosed. I listened to Serial. Um, I understood how hard it was for Adnan Syed to get uh, released finally after years when there was lots of evidence um, in his favor. And again, we are talking about a man here where there is a lot of evidence that he is at the scene of the crime during the crime and nobody else is. It's just, it seems insane to me. But on that note, I would like to ask you about Dick and Jim and what you have thought of their defense throughout this case. Well, I'm going to, I have a couple pieces of paper, which you can't read, but um, I started, I, I went back through my DMs with you in through Twitter, which by the way, I wasn't using Twitter back then, but you know, I started using it because everybody was on it. Mandy, I have some paper in front of me that I want to read to you, and, and it's, it's our DMs back from December of 2022. And I guess you were getting a lot of hate, so I said, F the haters, you're doing a great job, except one thing. You and Eric keep saying how smart Dick and Jim are, but only morons make multiple factual statements about their cases, especially before seeing all the evidence. Nothing Alex said was vetted, and every criminal defense lawyer knows their client doesn't always tell the truth. They are just two dudes who wanted the fame of being on TV. I'll talk law all day, never facts. That's December 1, 2022. 
December 3, 2022, I just said, after listening to the last episode of MMP, I'm convinced Dick and Jim are morons who are just used to their power and bullying people to get what they want. They've got a reputation of being great lawyers, but no one has ever put that to the test. So love it. From the beginning, I couldn't believe. Don't forget, Noah, don't forget that Jim went out on TV and said Alex had a clear-cut alibi. He was not at the murder scene. I know. For a year. I know. It's crazy. You never do that. He did it on a vid- he did it on a documentary. You right. never do that. Look, I I handled a super high-profile case in Atlanta of an Atlanta police officer who shot and killed somebody in self-defense and every CNN and Fox and MSNBC everybody wanted me to be on every night. And I didn't do any of them. I did one. The only media I did was I did a 45-minute court TV segment because I knew um, Vinny, who y'all know, and I knew that Vinny would, wouldn't do any gotcha stuff. He would actually let me talk. Mm-hmm. And it was a controlled environment. But there's no way I would have gotten on the news and started talking facts or anything about that because in, until you have every fact and have reviewed every fact, you can't talk about the facts because your credibility is the most important thing. Dick and Jim had no credibility to me walking into that courtroom because of all the stuff that they said before that wasn't true. And and that's like, that is a big deal. Well, Dick actually said that they were going to show who the murderer was and no defense attorney has that obligation. And, you know, Mark Garagos, I think, did it in, in the Scott Peterson case or it was done somewhere. Nobody ever does that. And the other thing is, it still sticks in my head, you know, this must have been gang-related or drug-related that came in and sought revenge against Maggie and Paul. But what drug cartel or what gang people come on somebody's property without a gun, and they're going to go into your house and get your guns and then kill the people with your guns? I mean, it's it's not feasible. And And if there's two people, because they said it was a two-person shoot, Nobody can keep that secret. Look, Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment, the guy who did the murder couldn't keep it to himself. How do two people keep a secret where other people aren't going to have known that over the past three years? Don't you think somebody would have given a snitch to the police or somebody? There's not been a word on anybody else doing these murders except Alex. Nothing. Nobody's trading it for a lighter sentence. Nothing. And if that was true, Alex would know at least a general idea of who the people were. Right. Right. If it was really a drug cartel that he was involved with or something nefarious, he would have a general idea of who that who that was. And would offer up that information to the police. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so Mandy, I, from the beginning, I can say you know, that's where Eric, you know, you get, oh, they're good lawyers. They're good. I didn't see good lawyering in this case. Now, again, that doesn't say that I would win this case because it's a really hard case to win. But, you know, starting off like that. Would you put Alex on? Yes or no? Well, I mean, there's 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 only two decisions client makes, right? I make every other decision. They decide guilty or not guilty, and they decide if they want to testify. I would have advised Alec not to testify. Um, I think he would have done it anyway, but I would have done a a cross of him myself, you know, because clients say that all the time. Like, all right, I want to testify. And I'm like, and I just ask him like 10 questions in a row. And they're like, and I'm like, and that's a soft cross. And they're like, yeah, I, I, I get it now. Right. I get it. And, I, you know, he was ripe for cross-examination. I was actually thinking about that this morning. And and I think Creighton did a good job. I think Not he, a great job. I think he, I think he could have done more. 
um, you know, I would have started off with, you know, like, you know, who's your, who do you trust most in your life? You know, you're, or you're close with your dad, you're close with your brothers, you know, you're, cl you're close with Maggie, um, you love them. You're, are you closer with anyone else? And they're just kind of gone through all the people he lied to. You know, you lied to your dad, you stole from your dad, you lied to your brother, you stole from your brother, you lied to your wife, you didn't steal from her. But I mean, it's, it's, it goes to, is there anyone you haven't lied to? Oh, yeah, the jury. I'm not lying right. to the jury now. Oh, okay. These 12 strangers you're going to tell the truth to, but you literally lied to everybody else in your life. That you love. That you love, including your dad. Everyone. And that's why the financial part's so important. Yeah. What do you think Dick and Jim's biggest mistake was throughout the last uh, three years, two years, whatever we're at, two and a half years? <sighs> you know, th th you would, I don't, feel like they thought of the global resolution to everything. Like, you've got to figure out, like, there's no way we're getting them out of the financial stuff. I, I just didn't see a strategy. I think it's a totality. Right. I mean, like, I think it's a totality. Don't you think? Not one single thing. Right. It's it's global. I mean, I had a case. Uh, I tried a case up in, in Floyd County in Rome, and my client was charged with like four separate cases. And I'm like, I think we could win three, but you're going to lose this fourth one. Like I can't. There's. It, it was just cut and dry. It was. It was literally on paper, and I'm like, and this is what you're going to get, and you're going to get a non-prolable sentence, and you. We have to resolve all the cases, and he decided to take the case to trial, and he got a like a, I think a 30-year non-prolable conviction because he wasn't thinking about the the global. You know, it's like, wow, well, we can win this one, we can win this. You know. But I'm like, but you can't do anything about this other one. And I, I just didn't feel like they had a global strategy for this case. And I think that they could have had a better global strategy for this case. I think I think it was Dick who viewed this not on an international level, but his normal cases where he's able to be very uh, aggressive with the press and with the courts and he gets his way of his, you know of his personality and he didn't realize that the whole world's watching and that he started never really perceiving how the world was not buying what he was selling right. and he never adapted and i think that was the major thing you know jim griffin always had to clean up after dick and Jim had the heavy lifting stuff and it was tough for tough. You know, he did all the legal stuff and you saw it this week in the, in the, uh, the status hearing Dick got up and spoke, but he had nothing to say because he, he didn't even remember the four things that justice toll wanted to focus on. He didn't know the law and he meandered along for about a minute and said, well, I'm just going to turn this over to Jim. And I think he didn't realize how big this case was so quickly. You know what I'm saying? Well, you pesky podcasters, you know, really uh, made people look at this. No, it, but it's true. The, the media, I think, you know, the, an, an unbiased look of the case. Um, although, yeah, I, I would say that is something really important in, in a case like this. Um, and then, as you know, as we know, old men can't learn new tricks, Mandy. We, we heard that from you yesterday, too. But, yeah, you have to. What a great line. You, and, and I hope I'm, I'm getting to that old point. So I don't know, Eric, although you're older than I am, Eric. But um, you have to have some self-awareness. Yeah. And I, I don't think that Dick has any <laughs> self-awareness at all. I really don't. Well, on that, it was a uh, 
an amazing uh, hour and 16 minutes. Uh, we could talk to you forever, Noah, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to have you back for part two because there is a part of your life that I do want our listeners to know about, and that is you are a marathoner, soon to be an ultra marathoner, and what that kind of training takes and how the time you know, to run 50 miles or 40 miles to get ready for the race. How do you juggle it all? You know, for me, the problem was, how did I juggle my practice with my family? And I was not as good at it as I should have been. And I want you to talk to our listeners the next time we have you on about the balance. How do you find balance? Because life is always about balance. And then, you know, the little things like how long you've been a Kojak, you know, you know, how often do you shave your head twice a week three times a week those things but you're a wonderful person you got a massively large heart the legal profession's lucky to have you and certainly mandy and i and liz and david are lucky to have you as a, a friend and supporter so i just want to say thank you so much for uh giving us uh your time your valuable time mandy you can finish up Yes, thank you, Noah, and we're really excited. We're going to have you back probably a few more times because you have a lot of interesting cases uh, we need to dig into, and we really appreciate you and your dedication to justice and your time. Well, thank you for having me. It was a true honor, so I appreciate uh, you inviting me into your home. And with that, we say cups down. Cups down. Cups down. Cup of Justice is a Luna Shark production created by me, Mandy Matney, and co-hosted by journalist Liz Farrell and attorney Eric Bland. Learn more about our mission and membership at lunasharkmedia.com. Interruptions provided by Luna and Joe Pesky.